message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruiz. Well, grab your Bible. We're in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and let me tell you what this passage is about. In the book of Chronicles, in your Old Testament, the story of some guys, they're called the sons of Issachar. And I heard a guy preach a message on the sons of Issachar. The title of it was Wanted Sons of Issachar. Sons of Issachar come in a context where, what's wrong with me here? Can't hear me at all, can you? Just all goofy. You want me to use the handheld here? I guess. No, my battery. How's that? Is that any better? Is that any better? All out. Let's try this one. The sons of Issachar in uh, Chronicles. Interesting, interesting uh, story. David had uh, been said to be the next king. Of course, Saul had to uh, give up his throne, right? You remember this story? And uh, you start to, started to see men of the nation who would defect from Saul and go to the side of David. They weren't, uh, uh, they weren't defecting in a negative way. They were defecting because this was the decree of God. So it wasn't mutiny in a negative sense, but they were, they were mutiny against Saul because David was now to be king. And it says of the sons of Issachar that these were men who knew the times and had a knowledge of what Israel should do. They were men who knew the times, knew what the decree of God was, that God was changing the program from Saul to David. And they knew because of what God had said, they knew what they should do. They had a knowledge that shaped their activity. And the guy went on to preach a sermon saying, We need to mutiny from our old life based on what God has done in the son of the father. In the new king, we mutiny from the old guy. We switch sides. We change our allegiance. We need to be men and women, families who understand the times in which we live and understand what that means to us now. Paul was a guy who understood the times. He knew what the program of God was during his lifetime. He knew how history was unfolding. He knew what it meant that Jesus had come and given his life. He understood the times, and he knew what he was supposed to do. That's what this passage is about. Like the sons of Issachar, we need men and women and families who know the times, know what God is doing in your generation, and understand now, how God might use you, wanted sons, daughters of Issachar. That could be the title for this message. I entitled it Next Generation Gentiles because there is a whole new, there's a whole new day of our reaching to the Gentiles. In Paul's day, this was the start of it. You remember last week, he told us what the difference between a Jew and a Gentile was and how they were reconciled together into one body because of one man, Jesus Christ. Today, Ephesians 3, 1 through 13, Paul's going to tell you what he spends his life on. Because he knows the time in which he lives, 
He can, he can tell you how he's going to spend his life. Let me give you the, the concluding question at the introduction. Do you know the times that you live in? And do you know how you'll spend your life? That's where we're going. All right? Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Now, I'm not going to have to preach this passage because it preaches itself. Let me just walk you through it right here. When Paul says he's a prisoner, he's not just stating the obvious because the Ephesians know that he's in jail. He is in jail, and he is writing the letter to the Ephesians, but there's more to it than that. He says, I'm not just a prisoner. I'm a prisoner, and he qualifies his imprisonment by saying he's not a prisoner of human hands or human bonds. He's a prisoner of who? Did you see it? He's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. There's a difference. That's how Paul starts the rest of his life. I'm a prisoner of Christ Jesus, but it's not just a prisoner of Christ Jesus. He gives a further qualification. What does it say? He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ for the sake of you Gentiles. Paul's life was be given away to the Gentile nation. Paul, a Jew, taking the gospel, the good news to the Gentiles and preaching the message that he unpacked last week in Ephesians 2, that Jew and Gentile now alike have one body in one Jesus Christ because of his one cross and sacrifice. And that's the message to the Gentiles. I'm a Jew among Jews. You Gentile, you get to be family members. That's the message that Paul gets commissioned with. And he says, I'm a prisoner, all right, but I'm not just a prisoner in human chains. I'm a prisoner to this gospel message because of Jesus Christ, and I'm also a prisoner to you. Uh, What the Ephesians knew is that Paul was most likely in jail because of them in particular. If you go back to the latter end of uh, the book of Acts 20 and beyond, you uh, you find Paul... He's, uh, he's in the temple, and it says he goes and he begins talking to a certain person from the, from the Ephesian church. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they think, they don't know, and it, it doesn't indicate that it actually happened, but they assume that he's going to bring this Gentile into a part of the temple that only Jews were allowed to go. And so they riot, they, they freak out, they get mad, and they say, no, that's not going to happen, even before it even does happen. It says something about what they, what they know probably to be true about Paul is they sees no fence, right? Remember last week? He sees no dividing line anymore. And so He may just well grab that Ephesian Gentile and bring him into the Holy of Holies if it's up to Paul. But before any of that ever happens, they freak and they riot. And uh, the story goes on that a a Roman centurion has to pull Paul out of the crowd so they don't kill the guy. Drags him up a flight of stairs just to get him out of the melee. He gets to the top of the stairs and, you know, Paul, lucky to have his life, he takes the opportunity now to, guess what, preach. Here, I'm at the top of these stairs. Everybody's down in the courtyard. Can I say a word or two? And so he preaches. And the response of Israel is they cry out against Paul and they say, this guy shouldn't even be allowed to live. The story goes on and on that Paul gets moved from jail to jail and he gets sent uh, from one place to another and one uh, corrupt judge after another and the nation of Israel would have him uh, killed and Rome comes to his aid and the story goes on and on. He uh, finds himself shipwrecked, tried in prison, beaten, uh, snake bitten on an island, all because of his ministry to the Gentiles. So when Paul opens up this chapter and he says, prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, they understand in more, more ways than one 
that Paul's not only in jail, but he's probably in jail because of, because of his ministry to men and women like us. It's a very personal statement by Paul. Verse 2, look at what else he says about himself. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which you have given, which was given to me, and once again it is not just given to me, it's given to me for you, the Gentiles. Paul calls himself a steward right here. A steward in Paul's day was given a responsibility, usually a financial responsibility, sometimes a financial responsibility over the house of a whole family. A steward was given was given complete control and stewardship over that which he was given, not just a responsibility to, but he was to be held accountable to it. And Paul sees his life now. He sees his life in the concept of a stewardship. Paul says, I'm not just a prisoner for you, but I'm a steward of this message that was given to me for you. Verse 3, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. A revelation is something that has to be given to you. It's not something that you find. A revelation is, as in Paul's case, it's the scales being removed from your eyes. A revelation is something that somebody shows you that you could not see before. Paul believed that God had revealed to him this mystery of the gospel going to the Gentiles. And he had told them this before. Paul was actually one of the early pastors of the Ephesian church at the appointment of Barnabas. So Paul's a prisoner, a steward. This message that he's going to call a mystery has been revealed to him. Verse 4, he's going to call it a mystery again. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. What is the mystery of Christ? This mystery, this mysterion thing. It's kind of like if you think about a magic trick and you see someone do magic and, you, and the first inclination you have is, I want to know how they did it, right? You need them to reveal to you how they pulled it off. What, what's the trick behind it? What is the mystery there? Paul says, God revealed to me by insight. I didn't figure it out myself. By divine inspiration, God revealed to me what the mystery is. The mystery was not that the Jews would have to include the Gentiles. The mystery was not that the Gentiles would be saved. We see that in the Old Testament. The mystery is not that there would be a kingdom of God come anew. That was foretold in the Old Testament. But the mystery was that Jew and Gentile would now come on common ground. That was not foretold in the Old Testament. That that out of a body of Judaism and out of a body of pagan worship, there would become one body. That there wouldn't be a Saturday and a Sunday worship. That there wouldn't be festivals over here and pagan feasts over here. That in Christ, this one man through the one cross, that one sacrifice, two bodies would become one body. That was a mystery. That was hidden in the Old Testament. And until God decided, that was not to be revealed. So Paul says that that's the mystery. Namely, the church. The two entities becoming one, becoming a new thing. That was not clear in the Old Testament. In Christ, Jew and Gentile would meet. Uh, the word in your Bible is ekklesia. Ekklesia. It's a Greek word that means the called out ones. Called out from this system, called out from this system to one new system. 
and it's called the church. What is the mystery that Paul refers to? In a word, the mystery is that there would be one church, one new system that God would now move history through. Verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, i.e. the Old Testament, as it has been now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit, namely the twelve. The apostles and prophets would predominantly refer to the twelve, the apostles. Jesus said, many desire to see and to hear what you have heard. They long to see and to hear what you have heard, but now which is made known to the saints, to whom God willed to make known the mystery. Romans 16, Colossians 3, if you want to write them down. This was... This was a mysterious thing. It was not something that Israel would have just automatically seen. When Rabbi Derek was here a couple weeks ago, he alluded to that. What we see now in hindsight through the cross makes absolute sense. To them, it didn't make sense that the Gentile would be one of them and that they would be one with the Gentile, all wrapped up in what Christ would accomplish. They couldn't see it. And to their credit, It wasn't spelled out. It was the mystery. The church was foreign to them. I mean, we see the church everywhere. You see steeples everywhere. You see this idea of everyone, like the Coke commercial, we could all become one, you know. Uh, What is that song? I long to see a world live in happiness. I can't remember, and I can't sing, so I won't. It's the utopia of the church. That's the mystery hidden in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. Verse 6, to be specific, and I'm glad he is, here is the mystery that was hidden, that the Gentiles are, and he's going to use the same word three times, fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, through the good news. Three times he uses a word that the Greek language has no word for. One commentator says, Paul has to invent a word just to make his point. The Jew had no concept of a fellow heir. Who were the heirs? They were. Who were the members of the body? They were. Who were partakers of the promises? They were. The mystery says now you have, surprise, fellow heirs. You got a brother you didn't know about. You got a sister we never told you about. You didn't know what was happening, but this is what I've been doing all along. Fellow heirs, fellow members, fellow partakers. If you're a fellow, if you're in a fellowship, that means you're you're all equals, you're peers. That's what he's saying here, that we join the fellowship of the church. There's not JV and varsity Christians here. Now, that's the mystery specific, verse 6, verse 7. Here's Paul. Here's where he fits. It's the knowledge of what God is doing. And now what should I do? Here's where Paul fits. Verse 7. Of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Paul did not choose this ministry. God chose him for it. Paul, if you think about it, was the most unlikely candidate for the job. I don't know if, uh, if, if you really think about this often enough. I know I don't. But sometimes in our 
in our preaching of Paul. We talk about Paul a lot. He wrote so much of the New Testament. We just assume that Paul was right there at the very beginning. The church started on his back. I mean, he was there with Jesus, you know. We sometimes think that he was at the foot of the cross as a disciple, but he was not. He was an enemy of the cross for many, many years. At the early stages and in the foundation of the church, Paul was a persecutor of the church. Do you remember that? Don't forget that. That's what makes him the most unlikely candidate for this job. That's why he has to say in verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. He did it. This whole thing was him blinding me and sending me to some strange guy. I mean, remember the story of Ananias? God says to Ananias, I'm going to send this guy Paul to you, and I want you to baptize him because I'm going to use him essentially as a spearhead to the Gentiles. And Ananias says, uh, this Paul, you talking about Saul? Saul of, that's not Saul of Tarsus, is it? That's the one. Yeah, that's him. Now, hold on. We must be not clear here. You're talking about the guy who's been, who's been persecuting this church? Yeah, that one. And you want me to baptize him? Yeah. How long do I get to hold him down? I mean, imagine being, being this guy. And you've got now, you've got Saul of Tarsus, the great persecutor of the church. The guy who, you remember the story of Stephen, who was stoned? What a great story. Stephen stoned and remained faithful to the gospel message. Guess who was over on the side holding the coats of the guys who were stoning him? Paul. That's why in the next verse, Paul has to say, to me, the very least of all the saints, the grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. You see why Paul can and has to say, I'm the very least? He is, one commentator says, he, he is, uh, he's not only not the logical choice, he's the living test that God can save anyone. Anyone. How much further can you get in your life than persecuting God's children? Carrying out the murder of the, the believers the ecclesia, the church. How much further away can you get to feel like you are the least? That it has certainly been grace that has been extended to you that you now get to be the one who spearheads the message of light, of truth to the rest of the world. Can you imagine now being Paul? Yeah, I'm the very least of the saints. But by his grace, I have this ministry. I have this message. He understood the times and he knew what he had to do. Paul says that uh, God's riches are unfathomable. That is a nautical term. It refers to a fathom, a depth of measure in the sea, in the great depths of the sea. Paul says, there is no depth to which the grace of God cannot reach. Just look at me if you need evidence. My message is to take the message of the riches of God that have no bottom and to take it to the Gentile world. If you want an example of how far God would go, just look at me. I was as against him as you can be. There is no pit to which the grace of God cannot reach to the bottom of. That's a quote. It's a quote from a lady who found herself in a Nazi death camp. She watched her sister be beaten and murdered. And then 
the very guard who beat and murdered her sister, came to her and asked her to tell her of the hope of God's grace. How would you like to be in that position? Her sister's name was Betsy, Betsy Tin Boom. What was her name? And now the one who has killed her sister says, tell me about this grace. And Corey would say, there is no pit too deep for the grace of our Lord. That's the story of Paul. That's why he gets to be the spearhead. He is the example. He's the living test that God's riches have no bottom. They have, they have no they have no depth. He would say to Timothy, Timothy is a trustworthy statement that Christ came to save sinners. Sinners, by the way, of which I am the what? Chief among. I'm the chief. Why would he do that? He went on to say to demonstrate his perfect patience as an example to all who will call upon him for eternal life. Now to the king, immortal, eternal, invisible, the only wise guide, be glory forever and ever. Amen. Incidentally, that's the very verse in Timothy that a 12-year-old Jonathan Edwards got saved by. That's Paul. Verse 9. Here's his mission, to bring light. To bring light to the administration of this mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things. God has been doing this from the very beginning. This has been an unfolding. This has been a a plan that God has started all the way back to creation. He's had it hidden. Now I get to take it and shine it like light. I get to bring it to light. I get to bring the truth in this mystery. I get to put the pieces of the puzzle together for the Gentile nation. That's my job. Why? Because it is the right time. When he says, And to bring the light, what is the administration of the mystery? What he's saying there is that word administration, it could be translated, it's the old King James uh, word uh, for dispensation. It's age, it's uh, economy, it's uh, oikonomia in the Greek, it's house rule. It's the system that God is using at one certain point in time. When the sons of Iskar, it is said that they knew the times. That's what it's referring to. They knew the season of life and history that God was unfolding right before them. And they knew what they should do. Paul knows what the administration, he knows what age he lives in. He knows what God is doing right now. He knows what part of the plan is unfolding right now. And he says, because of this part of the plan, I get to take the light. I get to bring the light to the Gentile nation of this thing that God has been doing The whole time, the whole time, God has been unfolding his plan from the flood, institution of government, giving it to the early church, uh, the early fathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, bringing in the law. All that gets rejected each time, different season, a different administration, a different dispensation. God tweaks it, hoping they get it, tweaks it. Maybe they get it. Brings the law, they don't get that. And then he's going to speak in a day through the voice of his one and only son. And they rejected him. And then we find ourselves, like Paul, still now in that next age, that next administration, dispensation. What is called sometimes the age of grace, the period of the Gentiles. That's where we are. 
You want to know what times you live in? You live in the age of grace. You live in the administration of God, of his grace. Rejected son, God says, time out. Freeze everything. He grabs men like Paul from the bottom of the pit, and he says, here's the message. Take it to the uttermost parts of the world that Jew and Gentile alike can be found as one in my son based on his sacrifice. And I'm going to put history on pause. And now we're in an age of grace. You go tell them, and I'll wait. I'll wait. You understand where we are in history? We're in that same age of grace. God has put history on pause. What, what should have happened when they rejected his son? What did all Israel want to happen when the son came? That the kingdom would be established. Bring judgment down, Lord, on this pagan world. Set up your kingdom now. What did God do instead? Grace. And we get this period of the Gentiles, this period of grace. And guys like Paul, men and women like you and I, are to be going out with that light helping the world to understand what age we're in. 2 Peter 3, 9, God is not slow about his promises as some count slowness. Or you could say he's not slack. God's not a slacker as some might see him as a slacker. Namely, that he would judge this world in righteousness and in holiness. Ah, here's what he's doing instead. Peter said, God is being patient towards us, not desiring that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance. What is God doing? He's restraining his judgment. What administration are we in? We're in an administration. We're in a house rule. We're in a time where God says, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to let the message go. And as many who will bow their knee to my son, I will receive to myself, and they'll be covered by his blood. That's where we are. Paul understood the times. He knew what his ministry was. He saw himself as a light bearer of the mystery. Verse 10, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church. That word manifold, it's exactly what it sounds like. Picture a many-folded piece of paper. Paul says that God's plan is like that that folded piece of papyrus. (laughs) And as it's unfolded, more is revealed. Paul says, I'm taking this message, this manifold wisdom eternal plan of God, and I'm unfolding it before this generation of Gentiles so that they can see that from the very beginning, God has been working out a plan of redemption. God's not playing tennis with Satan in heaven. You do this? Okay, I'll do that. Oh, Satan spiked one. I got to die for that one. That's not how it works. God is unfolding his perfect plan, his manifold wisdom, on an earth. That's part of Paul's job. How in verse 10 does he say it's going to be done? How will it happen? Did you notice? It'll happen through the church. That's us. The church age. The manifold wisdom of God should be told, brought to light by you and I. Paul was a spearhead. We get the next generation of Gentiles. That's what Paul gave his life to. That's what we're called to give our life to. Through the church, end of verse 10. Notice here, this is another sermon for another day. But notice the why. So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This would be the angelic realm. 
The Bible says in Luke, uh, I believe it's Luke uh, 15, that the angels rejoice when one comes to Christ. It says that the angels, they long to see into the things of salvation that humanity sees. They long to look into it. The angels, a couple things, they have an appreciation for what they see in God's magnificent plan unfolding. But also, these rulers and authorities, they include not just the good guys, but they include the bad guys, the fallen guys, the guys who rebelled long before you and I were ever around. Do you, do you realize that God is working out a plan that includes not just time and space humanity, but he uses what he's doing here and now to make a point about his wisdom and grace and mercy and holiness and righteousness all the way back to the angelic realm and the rebellion and the fall and all that? Do you, do you understand the big picture of what's going on here? It is, it is, it is manifold to say the least. Let's go on. Verse 11, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's as if, Paul says, that uh, God wrote the end from the beginning. It's as if he says that when he first put pen to paper in the beginning, he knew the end and he knew the entire plan in between. Uh, I heard that... uh, the writers, the creators of the show, uh, what was that show a little while back? I think it's off now. Uh, plane crash on an island, and then uh, all things got weird after that. And uh, Lost, yeah, Lost. I think it was on like six or seven seasons. I've heard that the creators of Lost, from the very beginning, knew what the last episode was going to be. They didn't necessarily know all the middle episodes, but they knew what the last episode was going to be. It's amazing if you've ever watched a show and you knew how complicated and confusing it was that in the minds of the creator of the show, they knew what the last scene would be. That's what Paul says here in this verse. That all this that was happening, the unfolding of God's wisdom, it was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he, that's God the Father, carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, the Son of the Father. He left nothing to chance. Now, Verse 12 and 13, his concluding statements. Watch this. I say all that so that we can get here. Verse 12 says, In whom, namely Jesus Christ, we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. When he says we here, remember I told you last week, make sure you you check your pronouns. The we here is Jew and Gentile. We're talking about the church. Paul says, here's who I am, here's what God is doing, and here's what I'm doing in response. Here's the manifold plan of God coming to light in this season of the Gentiles, this this time of grace, the church age, which you and I still live in. By the way, at the end of the church age, what comes? The return of God, judgment, and the kingdom finally gets set up. A whole lot of stuff happens in the middle of there. That's the quick version. By the way, you remember what happened in Acts chapter 1? Jesus had uh, rose and he comes to the disciples and he's about to ascend and go back to heaven. And the disciples are saying, is it now? You know, they thought now certainly got to be the time. They killed him. He rose again. We're ready. Establish your kingdom. Is now the time that you establish your kingdom? You remember what Jesus responds to them? He says, the times and the epochs, the, the seasons, the administrations 
of the Father are not for you to know. Darn it. That's not what they wanted to hear. (laughs) Remember what he said after that? Here's what you need to know. In just a little while, you'll receive power through the Holy Spirit's coming upon you. And you'll be my, what? Witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. Poof. There he goes. Not what they wanted to hear. But they got their job. They got their marching orders. Men who understood the times and knew what they were to do. Interesting, the very next uh, passage there in Acts 1. It says that uh, after Jesus had ascended, a couple guys in white robes appeared next to the disciples. Eh, A couple angels show up. And they're still looking up to the heavens, (laughs) trying to track Jesus' ascension. They look over, and uh, the angels say, hey, uh, why are you still looking up there? You know that the Jesus who you watched ascend will come back again? As if to say, look here, guys. That guy who just left, soon enough, he'll be back. Right now, guess what? You've got work to do. Remember that thing he just said? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the world. He'll give you power. You'll get the Holy Spirit. You've got to go. You understand? We understand. And they went, and they went to their death, if need be. Paul included. Paul included. And so verse 13, Paul says, Therefore, based on all that, to the Gentile Ephesian church, who are very likely the reason he was in jail, I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations. What are his tribulations? It was said that Paul was whipped five times with 39 lashes apiece, stoned, spent a night and a day in the deep, beaten with rods, and on and on and on. I ask you not to lose heart at my tribulations. And look who his tribulations are on the behalf of, on your behalf, right where he started, verse 1. I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ for you. I've been given this stewardship for you. Don't lose heart because of my trials and tribulations, my getting beat because of you. That's an amazing statement, right? Why? For they are your glory. Did Paul understand the time? He sure did. Did he understand what he was supposed to do? He sure did. Was he willing to give up his whole life? He sure was. Did Paul give it away? He gave it away. Um. Are you willing to give your life away, understanding the season, the epoch, the age, the dispensation, the administration, the time in which we live, the time of the Gentiles, the period of grace where God has paused things, not desiring that any should perish, but that all might come to repentance, that all might hear that there is good news? Are you willing to give your life away? knowing that that's the time in which we live, and that time will come to an end, and it will come to an end with his return. Judgment will fall. He'll make all things right. Or are you living out the rest of your life just like this thing is going to keep going and going and going, one generation after another, you accumulate as much as you can accumulate, hand it down to your kids, they garage sale half of it, they keep the good stuff, they accumulate as much as they can, garage sale half of it, and it goes on and on and on. Is that, is that the way you're living? Or do you understand the times and are you willing to to give it away 
give what away? Whatever he says, give away. Namely, your life. Do you understand, Christian, that when he became Savior, he also became Lord? That means he gets to be the boss. He gets to be the master in charge. He gets to direct the course of your life. You do not. Can I tell you uh, the good news? The good news is that Paul found joy in giving his life away for their glory, not even for his own, for their glory. He gave it away. One of my favorite movies, good man movie, Braveheart. Seen Braveheart? William Wallace, Scottish, fighting against the English for their freedom. Great scene. Lined up on the battlefield, the uh, English army far amassing the uh, Scottish army. And uh, William Wallace rides up on his horse, and uh, they're all gathered there, and these guys are starting to realize that they're outnumbered, and they're going to they're gonna turn tail here pretty quick. And just in time, William Wallace rides up, face all painted, says, where are you guys going? Where are you going? The English are too many. I have a terrible Scottish accent, by the way, so I'm not going to try. Sons of Scotland, he says, I see a whole army of my countrymen. A whole army of my countrymen. Here in defiance of tyranny and evil. You've come to fight as free men, and free men you are. What will you do with that freedom? Will you fight? <laughs> Some guy on the front of the front of the line pipes up. No, we'll run. We're not going to fight against that. He says, we'll run and we'll live. Wallace pauses. Fight and you may die. Run and you will live at least a while. Then dying in your beds many years from now, would you be willing to trade all the days from this day to that day for just one chance, just one chance to come back here and tell your enemies that they can have our lives, but they cannot have our freedom. Oh, uh, and they just charge. He spoke to their eternity that beyond their life, there would be something more worth living it for. That on their deathbed, they would look back with regret if they walk away now. If they don't step up to the charge, they would look back. And as Shakespeare would say, they would count their manhood cheap. Those who did not fight upon St. Crispin's Day. You walk away now, you'll live. But one day you'll be laying there wishing you had this day back. And you will have traded all these days in between for one more chance to do that which your freedom was given to you to accomplish, namely the freedom of all those who would come after you. Do you realize that you've been granted a freedom and left here so that you can claim and conquer evil, tyranny, for the freedom of all the next generation Gentiles who come alongside us? Do you understand that? Will you spend your life on yourself, Christian? Or will you give it away? Will you give it away? I don't know about you, but I'm not going to spend my life merely on the temporal. 
I'm going to enjoy my life. I'm going to eat, drink, be merry. I'm going to enjoy my family. Uh, if my wife and I get to go on a cruise, we're going to enjoy the heck out of it. We're going to have fun. We're going to do all those things. We're going to smile and take joy in the blessings of God. But I will not, I will not merely spend my life on those things that will fade and perish and rust and tarnish and that I cannot take with me in the hearse. I'm not going to do it. In the final evaluation of my life, I would hope that my wife and my sons would say that he was a prisoner of Christ for the sake of the lost. That's where he spent his life, on something worth spending it on from an eternal perspective. Um, can I give you an example? On a Thursday... A group of military personnel with probably too many, too many stripes for me to count will gather in a room at the Pentagon to discuss a three-inch thick folder that has my mug shot on it to decide whether or not that uh, they think I would be fit candidate to serve as a naval officer and a chaplain to the men and women in our armed forces. What are you saying, Pastor? What does that mean? Uh, in a reserve capacity, here's what that means. This is a short version because it's not about the example. It's about what I'm trying to teach you here. A couple days a month, maybe a couple weeks a year, maybe some training here or there. Your pastor looks to become not just a pastor but a chaplain to our armed men and women. And um, you might say, well, could that mean that... Um, you know, one day they might call and say, uh, Pastor, we need you to go here or over there and do this in this place with these guys. It might. It just might. But you know what? When I gave my life to the Lord, he got it. And when he says go, I, I got to go. If he says, here's a new avenue which I want you to be going down, guess what? I'll not find any greater joy in life than the avenue to which he says go. And so that is becoming, if all goes well on Thursday, that's becoming a part of my life, a part of your pastor's life. I'll unfold all that another day. The point is this, to what extent are you willing to give your life away? I never want to spend until they're grown and they've really annoyed me for many years. I never want to spend a night away from my kids. They spent the night at the grandparents the other night. I liked it. But there was just something there that I just wanted them under my roof. Parents, you know what I'm talking about? I can't imagine a day coming. It's a long shot. I can't imagine a day coming where Uncle Sam says, we need you to be over here. How many hours away? Yeah, that many hours away. And you don't get to go to home for this many days. Okay. Okay. I'm not telling you I'm going to like any bit of leaving my wife and kids or of leaving you if that day comes for any amount of time. But I'll do it. I'll do it. Will you give your life away? In whatever way God says, give it away. Are you willing to ask the bold question, God, how would you have me give my life away?
What if, what if the families of a little church in northeast Georgia, in a corner of Jackson County, decided from the top down that we are going to give our lives away to this community? What if a church did that? What if you did that, Dad? What if you did that, Mom? What if we did that, families? What if we did that, church family, if we gave ourselves away so that the light of the administration of the manifold wisdom of God could be revealed to this community, to these spiritual Gentiles, if you will? Are you willing to do that? Or are you going to spend your life on you? And at the end of your days, look back longing for one more chance to be a part of the bigger thing that God is doing in this world. In the weeks to come, I'm going to tell you how I'm dreaming that uh, we will give this church away. The whole church and the 15 acres it's on, give it away. If that sounds crazy to you and odd, good, you got to come back and hear what the rest of the story is. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we want to be men and women who aren't just saved and secure for an eternal future in a glorious heaven of streets of gold where we'll sing and smile and worship all the days. Lord, we know that the time is now for us to be salt and light in this world. And some of us aren't that salty. Some of our lights aren't bright enough. Some of them have been hidden. Lord, we look to examples like the Apostle Paul, who was the least among the saints, the chief of sinners. And we take that as an encouragement to us who may have been pulled from the very bottom of the pit, so to speak. We find encouragement that you would use Paul and we find encouragement that you would long to use us. And we simply respond to your great compassion towards us and we say, God, we love you for all the love you've shown us and whatever you want, you can have. We'll give you you everything. Lord, would you give the men and women who are under the hearing of this message from your word this morning the courage to ask the difficult question, God, what do you want from me? Where am I spending my life on me when you're asking me to spend it on you? Where are there spiritual Gentiles in my life that I have not been a light to? Lord, make me a part of this thing that's bigger, this manifold wisdom from all eternity. I want to be a part of it. Lord, give that burning desire, that yearning within all of us to be prisoners of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of the lost. Help us give it away. In Christ's name, who is our ever-living cornerstone, amen and amen. Well, we are dismissed. Go with God. Be blessed this week. Remember to bless the Lord. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. 
To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.